0: This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. As the world opens up and we are able to venture forth and go and explore again, it's essential that we have the kit we need so we don't leave nature hotspots disappointed. With that in mind, I cannot recommend Leica Sport Optics enough. Leica not only have a great range of optics for a wide range of uses, but they also offer finance plans to help people like me that would rather pay bit by bit. I'm currently using the Leica HD UltraVids and now I can clearly see all the birds that I am also still unable to identify. Read more about Lyca's range via their website in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Into the Wild. I'm your host, Ryan Dalton. Guess what? I'm so thankful you clicked play on that pod. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode. How are you doing? I hope your February has started with a good kick in your step. (laughs) I don't know what that means, but it sounds positive, doesn't it? Welcome to Into the Wild. It's lovely to chat to you again. I have just got back from a lovely trip, a quick trip, short but sweet, but it was a lovely trip to the Lake District, where I visited RSPB's Haweswater and got a lovely tour round the site by site manager Lee Schofield, um, whose book I am currently reading, and his book will be available in shops very soon. We'll be doing an episode on this trip, but to tell you quickly, it was epic. I got to see all the stuff that Lee has been, do- Lee and his team have been doing around the site of Naddle Farm and Swindale, two farms that the RSPB have taken over in the last few years. They've done everything from putting trees back in, removing fences, moving sheep, trying to control the deer populations, putting the bends back in the river. God, it was lovely to see this active conservation work happening in the Lake District and in an area that, let's face it, bloody needs it. And on top of that, to tell you that this weekend, I am going to be doing the random draw for the person that wins the free Into the Wild mug. If you have reviewed us, tipped us on Kofi, or taken part on our Sunday Instagram weekly nature highlight, then you have been put into an automatic draw to win a free Into the Wild mug. So I'll be doing that draw this weekend and then I'll be letting you know on the following week's episode who has won for the month of January. And a reminder, if you do give us a review on Spotify or iTunes and you send me that review so I know who you are, or if you tip us on Kofi, link in bio, or if you take part in our weekly nature highlight on Instagram, Into the Wild podcast, then you will be put into the draw for February to potentially win... Let's get a round of applause and into the wild mug. But anyway, let's move on to 60 Second Nature News. Let's get some positive vibes up in here, shall we? Four nature stories from around the world that will fill us with a bit of hope. So deep breath, everyone. Let's do this. Respiratory health of wild mountain gorillas in Rwanda have improved. Since the start of COVID-19, respiratory illnesses among the mountain gorillas in the Volcanoes National Park have declined. In the five years before COVID-19, the Volcanoes National Park population averaged 5.4 respiratory illness outbreaks in gorilla family groups annually. In contrast, from March 2020 through to December 2021, the population averaged 1.6. Federal protections of grey wolves were restored across much of the US last week after their removal from the... Donald Trump. In the Great Karoo, South Africa, lions and cheetahs once roamed, but due to fences for farming and due to illegal hunting, by the 1940s they were practically gone from this region. But since 1997, nature has been restored in what is now known as the Samara Private Game Reserve, and after careful rewilding, cheetahs and lions are back. And finally, a huge step forward for the world's rarest duck the Madagascar Pockards. Because 35 captive bred individuals have been released onto Lake Sofia in Madagascar, bringing the total reintroduction adults on the lake to 47. And that's the end of 60 Second Nature News. Woo! Okay, there we go. That was 60 Second Nature News. And now onto today's show. On today's episode, I am joined by campaigner and geographer Francisca Rocky. Francisca joined me on today's episode to talk to me about the importance of involving indigenous communities around the world when we're looking at wildlife conservation. We also spoke about what it takes to get city folk into wildlife and nature, and briefly discuss an organization that Francisca has been involved with creating, which is Black Geographers. So, without further ado, please get ready to enjoy the episode, People Power with Francisca Rocky. Welcome to Into the Wild. How are you doing? How has your day been? Hello.
1: My day has been okay. Um, It's been a very busy one, but that's okay. I'm going to get an early night tonight and that'll make up for it. How's your day been?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm very good. I think I'm going to get an early one as well. I think I'm going to join you (laughs) with that because I feel like today's been manic. Um, But it's lovely to have you on the show. Super excited to chat to you today. Do you want to start by telling us who you are and what is it you do?
1: So I'm Francisca Rocky and I'm an award-winning geographer and campaigner, and I regularly do social campaigns and charity fundraising. I'm also a writer or more of a freelance environmental journalist um, and a public
0: speaker as well. How long have you been doing like public speaking for?
1: Um, I'd probably say about two years. Formerly, I started at the beginning of 2020, but I think it's something that I've been doing for years. In various, like, different capacities, whether that be with the school or when I was in school, you know, with other organisations.
0: Nice, nice. Do you feel it's got easier as you've gone on?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. But I do. (laughs) I do think that it's something that you can never you never are completely good at and you always have to practice. But then I also find that if I practice Mm. too much, as in preparing too much beforehand, (laughs) it actually sounds a lot worse than if I just say exactly what I was thinking in the moment um yeah yeah. so i don't have any tips in terms of how to become a better public speaker just say keep speaking and eventually you won't cringe when you listen back to something that you said
0: (laughs) i think that is the only tip anyone can give us it just keep doing it and you will Uh, it's not even a case of getting better is it it's a case of you'll become yourself more as you do it Yeah, and you'll be the speaker that you were meant to be. God, that sounded profound at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah,
1: I feel like when you're talking about something that you actually like and enjoy, it's so much easier Mm. to talk than when you're talking about something that you don't necessarily care about, which is kind of how I pick what I'm actually going to get involved in or what talks that I'll do now, because I've listened to myself trying to talk about something that I don't really research out of interest or... Um, it's not one of my kind of geographical interests and I'm like you do not care it's not necessarily that I don't <laughs> care about that topic <laughs> it's Just not that you not
0: passionate about yeah, it
1: yeah and I do think it's really important that if you're going to do something that's going to teach people something and you want them to learn from you it needs to be something that you're passionate about because I cannot speak about anything that I'm not passionate about so geology for example <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people think I'm I do geology and I don't so when, Even
0: I made that mistake.
1: <laughs> yeah, so people always ask me questions about it, and I'm like, I don't actually know anything. <laughs> but I know the basic stuff, you know, how it relates to physical geography. Don't ask me a question on that because I will not know it in the drop of um, a moment. But, yeah, I definitely now know that I stick to my interests and in things that I'm passionate about because I can give a lot more when I actually care about an issue deeply rather than it just being something that I care about. As someone who's conscious of the environment, if that makes sense,
0: yeah, it does. And the natural world obviously plays a big part in your life. but what what do you love most about the natural world?
1: This is going to sound so cliche, but I love how peaceful it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, how peaceful. yeah, like usually my brain is running at one hundred miles per hour and I've got loads of ideas and thoughts, and outside my mind kind of slows down, and sometimes it's silent, and I don't usually have that. Um, but also, mm. I like the beauty. Um, the more I learn, the mm. more I learn. The more I notice different aspects of the natural world. Um, and I recently yeah. went to Iceland, and I was just in awe of the mountains, the geysers, the glaciers, and I just couldn't believe that the Icelandic landscape was real.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true, isn't it? Sometimes you're in a landscape and you look at it, going, "What?"
1: <laughs> there was this one video that I took that I posted on Twitter of um, some mountain um, that we were like driving past, and I was just like, "Wow, that's actually real." It looked like something out of Ice Age, you
0: know, the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is amazing, isn't it? Sometimes you go to a habitat or an environment you've not been to before, and especially if you've read about them sometimes or if you've watched a documentary where they featured. And then when you get, like, for me, deserts played a lot in that. Like, I, you know, I've always, whenever I watch a nature documentary, you'll see like a desert in there or something or you'll see a, like kind of a sandy environment. But then when you go there and you look around and you can see so much around you because it's so flat often or just a little bit hilly that you just like, this is mad especially a Londoner going there where everything's blocked you suddenly go there you're like what
1: (laughs) there was a time when we were driving on the first day we got to Iceland and it was so icy so snowy and all you could just see was just mountains upon mountains and it was just yeah it was it was an amazing experience I really want to go again I'm thinking of going again in the warmer months where the the roads are not icy so I can actually drive (laughs) better um, yeah, because driving in Iceland in the snow is quite traumatic, to say the least.
0: Yeah, I don't do well in the cold. Yeah, I go very like snotty and red. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't think I.
0: It's not a good look.
1: <laughs> I think I'm going to stick to warm places for the next year. Sounds good. Yeah, because I've been to quite a few in the last couple of months. Very like cold environments within yeah. Europe. You've experienced it now. It's enough. Let's go to warm environments.
0: You've done it. You can tick it off. Yeah. So people say, you can't say you can't. You haven't, you're done. Exactly. <laughs> so today we're focused on, on a topic I've actually in recent years become more kind of, um, I don't know what the right word is, whether it's I've become more aware of how important this is or been more focused on it. And I've said it before on the show that I, I you know, I for a long time, you, I've forgotten that people were involved with conservation or nature and protecting the planet. But today we've, and we've spoken about community conservation before, but I think this topic today kind of is separate necessarily from community-based conservation. Because we're talking about working with Indigenous people when it comes to wildlife conservation. And it may sound like an obvious question to get going, but why is involving Indigenous people when it comes to wildlife conservation, why is that important to do?
1: So I personally think it's important because they're living closely with the land and environmental degradation. And mm. they've got indigenous knowledge systems. They have have experience managing the la- land without Western intervention. So before European colonizers, explorers, whatever they wanted to call themselves, decided to go over to areas in the global South and the Amazon, etc. These people were doing that work without intervention. There was no, you know, no one coming in to deforest their local forests and all that sort of stuff. So... If we want to get the best solution, in my opinion, and I know other people have a similar opinion, we need to go back to the people that have had that one-to-one
0: experience. And, and what like it, when it's not done, what are the impacts on biodiversity when Indigenous people are not leading conservation?
1: So off the top of my head, I remember reading an article actually recently about two Indigenous communities in Zimbabwe who are kind of at the forefront of conservation in this specific area. And they've been managing it amazingly. Like the article takes you through their methods, their purposes, um, their resource sharing mechanisms, how long it takes them to do X, Y, Z, and then who in the community does specific things. So they have specific roles for different people within their community. And it's kind of, it gives people responsibility. And something that I was actually watching today at National Geographic, where someone was saying that if you give people a purpose they take ownership over this is my, this is my role. This is like what my, the purpose of my life. And then when you're giving, you're combining that with the environment, you know, giving people a sense of purpose, um, something that they own, you can't take it away from them unless we destroy it and all that sort of stuff. It means that people kind of not, not just feel a sense of responsibility, but actually want to care and actually want to continue the work. Um, The person in the video said it way better than me. but (laughs) no it makes sense but but it was when i thought about it i was like actually yeah if we approached conservation in this way people wouldn't feel as though it's something that they can dip in and out of it'd be something that you do continuously and you do it without even thinking like it's second nature to you even you know how you i don't know wake up in the morning and brush your teeth it'd be that sort of thing you would view the work in that way as something that is part of your routine it's not just i find a lot of kind of conservation work that I've seen people do is almost, or sometimes conservation volunteering organisations and stuff kind of encourage people to come and kind of dip in and out of it. And I guess a couple of workplaces do that as well, where they say, you know, you get a volunteer day and all that sort of stuff. And I'm like, okay, cool. You've come to plant 50 trees in a day. But then you get to go back to your life where you are being an active polluter. Um, and by active polluter, I mean people who are conscious of the fact that they are polluting. A lot, and you know, those fifty trees might slightly offset it, but there needs to be a continuous kind of lifestyle lifestyle change and continuous interaction with local conservation work.
0: It's it's so. (laughs) I I was just going to say it's tricky, isn't it? But that's a very simplistic sum up of of what you just said. But I guess looking at the other side of the coin, what are the impacts on indigenous people when they're not involved in wildlife conservation?
1: I think it creates more systems that further their oppression. So in this article that I read, Mm. they were saying how how indigenous people are essential to kind of designing and implementation of solutions. So Mm. when they're not there, it's the reverse for them. They're not involved in the design. They're not involved in uh, implementation (laughs) of solutions. So those solutions don't serve them. They don't serve their community. And they won't have access to the spaces that they need to get subsistence food, water, all of that sort of thing. And there's a very
0: like the basic needs, really. Yeah,
1: that's it. <laughs> the basic needs, things that they need for su- things that they need for survival, things that they need to be able to live amongst the land and continue their kind of mm. daily practices. They just won't have them. There's obviously loads of other things as well, but off the top of my head, that is where my brain is going. <laughs>
0: because i mean i'm not going to mention any specific stories here i'm not going to mention any organizations or anything because i think the way and please correct me if you think i'm wrong with saying this but the way wildlife conservation has gone from a western perspective certainly looking at wildlife conservation outside of our own country whether we're talking about england anywhere anywhere else in europe or america our methods for conservation have historically not involved local communities and mm-hmm. prioritised maybe wildlife wildlife secondary then environment and then people. Do you think that's going to be a hard system change for that to shift into without also doing it in a kind of neo-colonial way of going like, okay, well, we'll, st- we'll try and do better, but still we're going to be quite at the head of it. Do you think that's going to be hard for organisations that have been running for quite a few decades to change that
1: um i personally don't think the work that needs doing is difficult in terms of if you want Mm. to create that change you can it is an active choice if you don't do it at this point. And there's actually something that I wrote recently that was that kind of touched on this. And it was a stage, it was I was basically talking about different stages of addressing decolonizing geographies of wildlife. This is for kind of an essay mm. that I was writing. Um, and I spoke about the stage of addre- addressing as a necessary first step. And I wanted I was saying that they should, well, geographers, but also researchers and conservation organizations, whatever need to acknowledge their wrongdoings and it needs to start with like a decolonization of the mind from colonial ideas so in this stage Mm. people they should ask themselves if they're ready for decolonization because the end goal is a complete removal of domination and a power that has left those that embody colonization to feel inferior so that's my first kind of question i guess stage in moving forward is you guys Not you, (laughs) but, you know, organisations need to be ready. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Need to be ready to do that. And I think if you don't want to do it, it shows in how you move forward. It shows in still Mm. wanting to take dominance within wildlife conservation, etc. Even though you are not the best person, the best place person even to do that sort of work and in the research paper i mentioned earlier that i can't actually remember the name of but again we'll I will, definitely
0: we'll get the link we we'll yeah, i'll put
1: the <laughs> link down but something that the researchers have found is that by including indigenous knowledge systems and indigenous people it not only you know helps them it means that they're involved it means that their local area is not then dominated by western uh, methods mm-hmm. of conservation But it's also a learning opportunity for non-native students and researchers on how to make their work, their research, their methods non-extractive and where they are community and people based. From what I know, indigenous and decolonial approaches to things are very community and people based. And it's very based around that kind of traditions and what has been passed down orally or through paintings and artwork and all that sort of thing. And those are often things that in Western science particularly, they kind of look at as not being worthy of kind of listening to, oh, we know better because I've been studying your area for 10 years, (laughs) but you've (laughs) never lived there. You've literally gone, gotten your data, flown back to London. I was about to name a university then, but I won't. Um, (laughs) Done a research paper and that's it, you know, and you're going to redo the same thing over and over again. So are you really interacting with the people that are there and really taking in the impact that, you know, this work has? It's all well and good, us all saying, you know, that we're researching an area, we're doing X, Y, Z. But are you actually interacting with the people who this work impacts or could actually help and assist with their um, local knowledge? But yeah, this research paper, it was 10 out of 10. I don't usually say that about research papers because I'm not a 110% fan of many of them. But I thought this one was really good in terms of what it touched on. And expanding the mind. But there's also something I just wanted to touch on that um, in terms of Indigenous knowledge. This es- extract, sorry, that I read from, well, that I often use because I love it so much. <clears throat> um, it's from Braiding Sweet Grass by Robin Walkimmer. And yeah, it's on Indigenous wisdom, scientific knowledge, and the teachings of plants. And she says, know the ways of the ones who take care of you so you may take care of them. Introduce yourself. Be accountable as the one who comes asking for life. Ask permission before taking. Abide by the answer. Never take the first. Never take the last. Take only what you need. Take only that which is given. Never take more than half. Leave some for others. Harvest in a way that minimises harm. Use it respectfully. Never waste what you've taken. Share. Give thanks for what you've been given. Give a gift in reciprocity for what you have taken. Sustain the others who sustain you and the earth will last forever. Excellent wow. book. 10 out of 10 book.
0: Yeah. Wow. What a, what a great, I don't well it was a quote, I'll call it a quote, but what a great kind of sum up of it all, really. Yeah. From so many angles as well. That's really cool. It's, do you know what? The two things, I guess, from what you've said there is, we've said it on the show before and I've, I've seen it on so many times online is that we say this about people. So if we're looking at the UK, we talk about this in with issues in the UK is that people will only protect what they value and care about. Right. So that goes the same globally. Like you put a value on something, people are more likely to protect it because it's, you know, the value they care for. it, um, And that's, I guess like you're saying with indigenous communi- communities that, you know, once they have a value and a reason, you know, just like any of us to protect something, they're going to protect it. So involving them in that is, is you know, non-debatable. The other thing is that I think the way, you, I mean, I say this because I've been brought up with this, is that we look at wildlife conservation and we always talk about the animals, the animals, the animals, the animals, the animals. Whereas in recent years, when I've spoken to people around the world about wildlife conservation, I've spent more time talking about people than I have talking about wildlife, because ultimately, that's where the power is. If you know, you can talk about populations, you can talk about, you know interactions and and stuff like that but really the people are at the heart of this no matter where you are on the planet so it's a no-brainer really isn't
1: it yeah and i also think people when we talk about wildlife conservation it's always a very i don't know if holistic's the word but it's the person that comes to my head they always make it seem as though it's something where you go to do to find yourself and there's always a specific type of kind of hippie (laughs) person very spiritual person that does it and i'm not one of those people for one (laughs) <laughs> and I very much do conservation
0: work <laughs> I look on weekly, like one, but I'm not <laughs>
1: <laughs> on a on a weekly basis, and I think if sometimes I think the people who we use as the faces of the work doesn't help with getting people engaged with the work, and without naming names, mm. I think <laughs> I'm laughing because <laughs> I know that anyone who listens to this who knows me and follows me on Twitter will know that the people who I'm thinking of but when we're always perpetuating the same people, um, particularly whiteness within the conservation space, it makes it seem as though only one group of people yeah. can do it and we always need white saviours to be able to do this work. Um, and that then there's no space for people who are not that, who are not white in that space yeah. to help with it. I don't even think it's a state of helping when it comes to conservation. It's just something that we should do, something that should be part of, like I said earlier, our routine, our that we think of just like brushing your teeth, that you do daily, that you contribute to. Because I don't know if people realise, but if biodiversity goes down, we are going down too. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah, we are biodiversity. (laughs) Yeah, we are
1: going down too. And I remember two years ago, I read an IPBES report. I think it was on the prevalence of zoonotic diseases. It's an infectious disease that's transmitted between um, species from animals to humans. In this report, they were saying that the, cl- the closer we become with animals, um, the more likely this infectious disease is to be transmitted, and the more likely we are to have zoonotic mm. diseases like the plague, Lyme disease, and those sorts of things. And they're going to the rise. Last two years. <laughs> yeah, and they're going to rise year <laughs> on year if we don't address these things. Um, so, you know, biodiversity loss mm. and just being better human beings.
0: So, in regards to having indigenous communities at the heart of wildlife conservation do you have any or know of any success stories or examples where that's been done
1: i'd say the one i mentioned earlier in zimbabwe is a success story so i'm of zimbabwean heritage my maternal gogo which is grandma in english um, is Shona and it's one of Zimbabwe's many ethnic groups. Um, but there are indigenous mm. communities within Zimbabwe as well. And in this research paper titled Embracing Indigenous Knowledge Systems in the Mainland in Management of Dryland Ecosystems in the Great Limpopo, um, Trans Frontier Conservation Area, the case study of these two com- <laughs> indigenous communities. It's a mouthful. <laughs> They talk about um, an Indigenous community that lives within southeast Zimbabwe and how ecological wisdom is enshrined in their traditional kind of resource management and production systems. And there's an emphasis on community respect, responsibility and accountability on the uses of resources. And in that research paper, I think it's actually open access. So again, it'll be one of those that I'll link underneath so people can read in their own time. I love it when things are open access because it means that people who are not in academia within the institution can read and learn
0: yeah which is totally which is a ho- yeah
1: which is a whole other issue but i won't get into that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah that i think for me was a really good of, example sorry of when indigenous communities indigenous knowledge is used implemented within research but also within a local area and it's working really well i guess a slight negative with that community was that Public and private sectors have tried to repress Indigenous people and in their cultures through policies mm. and laws which were kind of replicating those of colonial times or those of the West. So, again, kind of going back to what we spoke about earlier is that commitment to decolonisation, that commitment to the inclusion of Indigenous people. We have to make sure it's it's kind of done right and a consistent thing so that we don't replicate conservation, that sort of colonial times and of the West, which is not always the best for every single area of the world. Everywhere in the world is so you, you know, unique um, and has its unique issues, problems, unique societal issues, social issues, all that sort of stuff. So it should be treated as such and not this is a solution that's going to help with everything, because it won't be. If local people can't maintain something while you're gone, is that really sustainable? Are we really creating... A sustainable community, or we really developing sustainably, and all
0: this sort of stuff. That's, that is such a brilliant point that you bring up. is Is that everywhere on the planet is completely different and at different stages of whatever it's in. You know, if we look at if we take colonialism as as something, some places are either still in, in a colonial state, other places are fading out. Some places have decided to keep some aspects of colonialism. They might or, or Western Kind of influence, I guess. Mm-hmm. Some places are fading them out, but like, like you said, and and I guess I maybe mean, if if my knowledge is correct on this, Zimbabwe is probably a good example of this. Actually, is as a country of somewhere that you know, if you just pack up and go, then it can do more damage to the country itself. Like it's kind of the decolonization of it as a structure is is more sustainable for the people and the country itself. Am I right in saying that? I
1: think with Zimbabwe, it's a very unique. A very unique kind of country. Conservation is something that needs to be done in the country, but then they also have political and economic struggles as well. And I guess that's something that those economic and social struggles can make it more difficult for you to be able to do the mm. cons- conservation work that you want to do. Because while we want to, you know, someone might want to focus purely on the conservation of animals, people, something that you said, people are still there. We still need to make sure that they are taken care of that they have housing and all of these basics um but i guess that is why well not i guess that is why we always climate activists environmental campaigners, all of that always emphasize that climate justice is social justice
0: let's move on there's something else i want to talk about why i've got you here as well and i guess this is on from indigenous people but we're going to be talking about people in cities as well because you and i both live in the best city in the world, which is not true. <laughs> um, <laughs> I say that because that's what we feel pressured to. It's not, Um but it's a great city in its own right. We're both in London, and this I find can be a challenge to get city folk into wildlife. I guess globally, how do you think that can best be done? Getting people from a city to care about wildlife.
1: This is something that I think. The idea of the great outdoors has contributed to, has resulted in pe- people who live in predominantly urban areas not feeling as though they can pro- properly, I say that in Kiddish marks, properly engage with nature <laughs> yeah. or that they're not surrounded by it. I mean, yes, it's a concrete jungle, but there is always biodiversity, even if it's between pavement cracks. Mm. Or, you know, the local trees or even the River Thames. (laughs) You know, it is part of nature, as dirty as it is. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I think when you're engaging people in cities, we can kind of teach people or expose them to urban ecology, urban conservation and what environmental issues we have within the city. So, there's loads of conservation work that goes on with various organizations in london all of which have gone out of my head action conservation for example london wildlife trust um project Northford,
0: yeah the great Northwood forest yeah.
1: yeah we've got Epping forest you know all of these different areas that are within london but even kind of taking like coming back closer to home parks like our local parks those are still areas yeah. you know that are full of different types of species trees soil all that sort of stuff and i think i don't know if you've noticed this probably have but often when people talk about nature it's always you need to leave where you are to go and kind of seek that and need to leave where you are and just do that work and it's like actually what can you be doing within your local area what is there within your local areas what yeah what environmental issues ecological issues biodiversity issues exist within just from your doorstep
0: one thing i think like being you know a Londoner and and haven't been for a long time, is whenever we see city wildlife, especially, okay, let's just talk about London as a city. When we see London trying to be celebrated for its wildlife, it's always the same stuff. Like, it's always someone on TV that doesn't live in London trying to tell us to get excited about pigeons. Now, you know, I'm not here to, you know, talk down pigeons of any kind. (laughs) But what I am saying is, There is so much more, like you said, about what's growing in the cracks of the pavement. You know, what wildflowers have we got coming up? What kind of invertebrates can you find at your park? What kind of, you know, there's pockets of like native species that we have. You know, I think, you know, there might be, on Hampstead Heath, we've got purse-web spiders. You know, our closest relative, our only relative in the UK to a tarantula that we've got here. So it's like, but that's never spoken about. I mean, maybe it's because it's not being aware of, but I think, Do you agree there that there's something that needs to change in mainstream media saying city wildlife is not just the grey squirrels, the foxes and the pigeons? You've got so much more that is actually start. I guess what I'm trying to say here is we need to start celebrating what we have Mm. that places out of cities do not have.
1: And I guess that would make it easier for engagement for people who might be interested in wildlife and feel like, oh, there's not Mm. none of that exists within my own city and it's like, there is work being done on this every day or yeah. there might not yeah. be work being done on the spiders that are in Hampstead Heath yet but mm-hmm. that there is an opportunity now especially that we're aware of it for work to be done or more research to be done into them and you know what are the benefits or challenges of them being in a local park mm-hmm. and all of that sort of stuff
0: where do you think like you, you know you you know london am i right in saying you know london very well i never like to assume every londoner does because some people just I wouldn't say I don't, but go on. Where's your favourite place in London for wildlife? Go on. Do
1: you know, I really like Epping Forest.
0: I love it. It's incredible. It's so big, isn't it?
1: Right? I spent three days camping there last year with Black Girls Camping Trip, and it was so amazing. Can you camp there? Yeah, there's like Debden House. There's a camping site. And then we just walked through... But like if you walk through the campsite, you're in the forest.
0: Yes, mate, I am doing that. It shit.
1: was so cool. So we went, I'm pretty, yeah, we went for three days, Friday to Sunday, and me and one of the girls that had come to the camping trip went out on one day and we ended up getting lost. Can you imagine? I have been studying maps for how long and we got lost. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so we got lost and we found our way back just through... Prayer and hope, <laughs> but um, <laughs> <prayer>. <laughs> but yeah, it was amazing, and there was there were some areas that had kind of random, well not random, but there were streams and other places mm, where a tree yeah. had a tree had fallen down and that had create cut off a stream, but then it started a new stream further up, and it was just interesting to see how we were just walking through, but I was noticing how the trees were moving and how even small little insects and things were kind of crawling around us yeah. or going back into their underneath rocks or pieces of wet bark. It was really, really damp actually. But yeah, again, it was so
0: peaceful. It is. Epping Forest is absolutely stunning. And, it, you know, it, everyone talks about Hampstead Heath being a such a big place, but Epping Forest is absolutely massive. Like um, to be on the, you know, on the, on the edge of a city as well is just, it is absolutely incredible. That is, I've only been there once because I was a, so my girlfriend lives on a narrow boat in the canal. So I was on the canal and we were right oh, near the wow. forest. I was like, we've got to walk there. We've got to walk. So um, we took a walk there. But that's the other thing I think I, I've loved about London is living on the half on the canal, you know, on weekends, is that we found so many more places in London I would have never have gone to. Like where it's Little parks. So we went to a place called Hornsdon Hill Park towards Ealing uh, in Greenford. Oh my God, these meadows were like, they had life in there that I've never seen anywhere else. I mean, obviously that exists, but the amount of butterflies and day moth species that you're seeing and the webbing in the meadow grass was just absolutely... I was like jaw dropped. I've never like, been there before. Absolutely that beautiful. sounds
1: so interesting. I'm going to make a note of that because I've never been there it's before.
0: It's worth it. I'll send you... I'll remind you the name because, honestly, it's worth the Tube or Overground Trek to get there. And it's also like there's um, there's a few people that work with Elin Wildlife Group mm-hmm. um, So there's other places around there that do even more stuff. But we're just blabbing about London now. But London, (laughs) like, what I'm trying to say is there's so many places in London that are doing great pocket things. They are. I think Croydon, Croydon. um, Actually, that's one place I've never really gone into.
1: So in Croydon, there is a Croydon Climate Action Group that a friend of mine is part of. And they're looking nice. for solutions for the climate crisis, and they're working with people, businesses, environmental groups, and Croydon Council to try and tackle climate change. Um, so they do a lot of work. Wow. Um, some of that work is conservation work. So I definitely check them out for people who live in Croydon or people who are willing to trek
0: to Croydon. Yeah, <laughs> people local to Croydon. Um, yeah. But it's it's that thing, isn't it? Like, I, I guess we look at Londoners. There's so many things going on, and there's there's always a wildlife group on some level or something happening and it's encouraging like with such a big city or in even smaller cities you know whether we're talking about somewhere like Birmingham or you go further up north to Manchester Liverpool or anywhere like that there's going to be something within that city that is you know promoting wildlife promoting environmental change and I guess it's just remembering that despite you are sur- you may be surrounded by concrete there will be green areas somewhere, and there will be some organisation working to protect or restore or bring back more. So, I guess this is a bit of a message to the listeners: no matter where you are, have a Google and see what's what's out there. You you don't know what what group of people somewhere are um, putting their effort into trying to try and increase the biodiversity of your of your city. There you go. There's a lesson for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> My penultimate question to you, Francisca, is. You set up a group called Black Geographers. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about how what that is and how that started?
1: Yeah, so Black Geographers started in 2020 uh-huh. in January, probably March. In May. No, not that's a lie. In April 2020, 23rd of April 2020. Around 4 there p.m. Four p.m. in the evening. <laughs> um and it formed as a collective of black geography students and graduates who have first-hand experience of the many barriers which prevent Black students from studying geography, but not just geography-related subjects as well, so like geology, environmental science, all of that good stuff, and how isolating the field can be um, even after you've navigated barriers. So... Our aim now is to support the next generation of black geographers and geologists, environmental scientists and all people that might go into environmental research in the future. Um, But also try and make geography more, transform the discipline and make it more engaging and inclusive at every level of education. When we started in the beginning, our aim was to create a platform for geographers to network and connect. And I guess the presence allows people to, you know, find each other and through events and things like that people you know find each other connect with each other in that way but yeah our main role I guess mission aim is to play a supporting role so partnering partnering with other organizations who share our idea to be able to offer mentorship opportunities really advocate for people within academia primarily within the environmental sector and all of that so that we are changing the like I said earlier kind of changing the face of what environmentalism yeah. is who goes into environmental research and supporting people on their journeys something that someone actually said to, said underneath a linkedin comment of a friend of mine called doward who you've had on this podcast was that no black and brown people don't care about the outdoors and environmental research is what <laughs> that person had commented yeah people on linkedin have an audacity <laughs> that is one thing they have audacity i don't know where they get it from such a- they do. And this, yeah. is, this was a professional as well who commented this. And I replied and I said, It's not that we don't care. It's that like you don't engage with us. So you wouldn't know if we cared or not. Because how often are you actually yeah. taking your time to be like, Actually, I'm surrounded by the same groups of people all the time who have the similar or the same thinking, who have come from similar or the same mm-hmm. middle, upper class backgrounds. Hmm, maybe I should engage with some working class or disadvantaged or um, marginalized and minoritized ethnic groups but they don't. <laughs> so of course, well, of course you're going to have that thinking, but you're obviously going to be wrong too, because you don't, you know. I care about Black, Asian and other racialized communities, so I consistently engage with them. I consistently know how different students, whether they're a first-year student, whether they're a GCSE student, an A-level student, a PhD student, a master's student, how they feel about the sector and how isolating it can be and what they'd like to see improved and though I can't single-handedly and I say I but our whole team there's about eight nine of us we can't single-handedly change something that doesn't want to be changed you know other people have to join the movement as well and want to help with the change but yeah we wouldn't be able to do the work we did if we didn't actually engage with the people that we're trying to assist and we are also people who need that help and need those barriers removed so that we can progress in our careers like our white counterparts are and can but the whole thing started with a tweet and i was ranting at the time saying how i was the only black girl on my course and i know it's the same for other people at various levels of education at different universities around the country and then i kind of proposed ways that we can improve but what i do have is i was discussing with eden who's another person that works on the team and actually one of the first black geographers i'd ever met um and we were discussing ways that we can tackle. This and we talked about decolonizing yeah. the curriculum. We talked about encouraging uptake at A level and GCC by increasing awareness of career prospects within and outside of geography. What can you do with the geography degree that's not teaching? Or,
0: yeah, yeah. you
1: can go on to do a research master's or a taught master's or a PhD or, you know, all these other amazing things that you can do that people don't know. And Showing more representation of Black people in geography in different areas of geography. So it's another another thing you kind of realise is that a lot of the Black people we do know in geography are social geographers, and you don't see as many Black people in physical geography. Why is that? How can we change perceptions of physical geography? How can we encourage people to pursue that side of geography, or even combine social and physical geography? Well, human geography, physical geography um yeah so we just had a lot of conversations basically and then it turned into what it is now um which is a lot bigger than i i, I feel like i say this stuff <laughs> so often but it's so it's a lot bigger than i ever wanted it to be <laughs> cuz all i ever wanted it to be was just an instagram page where we shared what geographers do what her career is mm. by her i mean eden's careers like what my career is like what all other people around the world within the uk etc careers are like and then now we're here with scholarships. Worked with so many
0: amazing people. That's amazing,
1: as though. an individual, but also as our team.
0: Yeah, that's, that that is amazing. And like, I think like what you were saying there, it is some with that. If you notice that this this group of people are not are going into this job role rather than just going, that's because they're not interested. It's about asking why, mm. like what mistakes are being made. Why is that? A thing like because that's you, you. You can't you can't blanket it like we were talking about blanket approaches. It doesn't work. You can't just be like, well, these people are clearly not interested in this line of work. It's like, well, actually, where are you advertising this line of work? How is this line of work being marketed? Right. So, like you said, asking those questions, why? And you'll find some answers going, oh, there's loads of people. Exactly. And also
1: in black majority countries, there's black academics who are experts in (laughs) various fields in environmental research. (laughs) And there's students who study geography and geology, ecology, etc. So, yeah, I think sometimes people in the sectors, particularly in the UK, look at the sector as if it's just the UK and it's just the global north. And it's like there are people outside of that. But also
0: experts. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, the UK are good at that, though. Definitely, <laughs> we're the only country. Honestly, it's
1: so <laughs> awful.
0: Francisca's face, ladies and gentlemen, if you could have seen it with that, <laughs> that would have been brilliant. Um, <laughs> um, uh, well, actually, well, from what you've said there, it I know you said it wasn't meant to be this big, but what an achievement to have it that big, though, and what a, I guess, what a voice it means that. It was needed, but yeah. it has got to that size. So, well done. That's what I'm trying to say. Thank you. we have got
1: an amazing team of people who work to grow it. That's, uh, yeah, it, without them, it wouldn't be what it is. 100%. I couldn't do it by myself.
0: Amazing. My last question to you, Francisca, is if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone on the planet regarding the natural world, what would you pass on?
1: I would say spend some time outside, like really spend some time and put your phone away. Um, walk around your local area and take in what's wrong with it from there think about mm. the four things think about these four things so what brings you joy what are you good at and what is the work that it needs doing from there you'll discover what you should do and that's when change can start so change starts with us And I think we're at a crucial point and we can't just sit back and wait for governments and active individuals like Michaela Loach to do the work. We all have to do the work. This is usually in a a Venn diagram, which Tomia Gregory um, brought to my attention. I think it's a really great way for us to discover and start our journey to seeking justice. And it's also never too late for people to join the movement.
0: Amazing. Mate, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, thank you for and having all me. all the best for the rest of the year. And hopefully you get to Iceland again when it's a bit less icy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, I will. I think hmm, maybe I'll go in the sum- their summer, but then I kind of... Yeah, there's kind of, summer. That you- <laughs> yeah, I kind of liked the snow. Um, we'll see. We'll
0: see. <laughs> well, absolute pleasure having you on, mate. Take care. Thank you bye thanks again for listening everyone if you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and the work Francisca is working on then you can do so on social media her tags are in the write-up of this episode also you can follow us on social media at into the wild Pod on Twitter and into the wild podcast on Instagram and if you'd like to get in touch about into the wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes you can email me at into at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. If you would like a shout-out on the show or to be put into a draw to win a free Into the Wild podcast mug, yes please, then all you have to do is review the show on iTunes or Spotify or both and send me a screen grab, take part in our weekly nature highlight share every Sunday on Instagram, or you can tip Into the Wild via our Ko-fi link in the write-up of this episode. Of course, you can do all three of those things and increase your chance of winning the monthly mug. Until next time, keep well, stay safe, and live the good life.